0: We are so thankful that uh, that you have given us your word. We thank you that you are not a God who is silent but a God who desires to make himself known and desires that those who do come to find him would, would make him known to others. Lord, we thank you that as disciples of Jesus Christ we are not left to our own devices to figure out what that means. Lord, we see the Lord Jesus and his life, death, his ministry, his resurrection and the things that he, that he set forth. We see a picture of the things that you have called us to be as your disciples. And so Father we pray that through our time together uh, looking at your word, looking at the ministry of Jesus uh, that you might shape and form in us uh, that which is pleasing in your sight. Uh, give us hearts that are receptive. Give us Minds that are willing and wanting to be renewed by your word that we might walk in a manner worthy of the high calling of the gospel. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So back in 2007 and 2008 when I was in Bible College in Melbourne I was able to do something then that you're no longer able to do which was teaching CRI in a primary school. Now I never really considered myself a a children's ministry kind of guy, but it was kind of a prerequisite of Bible college that you had to do it. And I always say, even if you don't think that's something you're specifically gifted at, it is particularly useful for learning to communicate deep truths at a simple level. I've heard someone even say that if you can't explain something at a level for a young child, you probably don't understand it that well yourself. But one of the things that myself and another guy, Dan Chan, who was... Um, who was part of the class with me? We would always begin with a magic trick. Now we always find a magic trick that conveyed something of the key message, and it was really popular with all of the kids. Even the kids whose parents had written a letter and said, "No, I don't want my kids being in it." They would actually sit outside the door where they could hear everything anyway. But they'd always say, "What was the trick today?" But one question you get both from inside the room and the people outside, and sneakily, I did also tell the kids outside the meaning. Of why we did it. They would ask this question, How did you do it? And they asked the question, How did you do it? because they realised that it is something they could learn to do. They realised it wasn't because of something special about me that caused it to happen. They realised it wasn't a people issue, it was a technique issue. When we look through The Gospel of Mark so far, we've seen a mixed variety of responses to Jesus. We saw when Jesus was teaching in the synagogue in Capernaum, people said, We've never seen anyone teach with this authority, not even the scribes. And then they see his miraculous works and they say, We've never seen anything like this. But when he did the same in the synagogue of his hometown of Nazareth, people asked the question, Where did he get these things? They ask a question of the technique of practice rather than who is this man? Even the disciples who were still figuring out a number of aspects, when they saw Jesus calm the storm and calm the sea, the question they ask is who is this? Not how did you do this, who is this? Who is this person? And that question of who is Jesus is probably one of the most important questions that any person can ask. Especially today as we consider the Bible and the way it speaks of faith in Jesus. If we're talking about faith in someone, it's kind of important that you know who that one is in whom you are placing faith. And as we consider faith in Jesus today, we're going to look at three aspects. Firstly, stop focusing on what you don't have in verses 30 to 44. Rightly recognising Jesus in 45 to 52. Faithful what in 53 to 56. And we're going to look at the idea of being strengthened in solitude as we wrap things up. So firstly, stop focusing on what you don't have. Now as Jesus has spoken about his reasons for drawing together these 12 men. Back in chapter 3 verse 14 he said he gathered these 12 men whom he called apostles that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach. Earlier in this chapter in verses 7 to 13 Jesus has sent the 12 out on effectively their first practical mission trip sent them out with nothing but the clothes on their back, telling them to go out, to heal the sick, to cast out demons and to proclaim the kingdom. In line with Jesus' priorities, the priority of that mission was teaching. Jesus said to them, if they will not listen to you, shake off the dust of your feet, move on. We had a little side note after that where Herod having heard about these things about Jesus and his disciples has come to the conclusion that John the beheaded come back from the dead and we see his response and we see a reflection about John the Baptist and his death. But now immediately after that we have the disciples are recounting to Jesus everything that they did and everything they taught. So the discipleship that Jesus spoke of was would be with him that they would send them out. But we see it's a being with him, sending out, come back, they debrief, he gives them feedback and there's a going forth in and out, an ongoing cycle to prepare them for the work of ministry. But the mission was intense, not intense, it was extreme so to speak. They were so busy that they had no time to relax and apparently no time to eat. So Jesus insists on taking them some time away to a desolate place. And you might think, well, surely there's more to do. Gospel, gospel ministry is important. And here's Jesus telling them to take a break. Even Jesus recognised you cannot do it 24-7. There needs to be rest. Statistically, it's quite staggering the number of people of ministry who completely burn out. Some recover. I was actually chatting to some at the conference who are in that recovery stage right now. Some that I know who've never returned to ministry ever again, either because they have never taken a break or the people around them have never encouraged them to take a break. I'd say don't over-invest in ministry that you under invest in Jesus. Don't focus all of your energy on the output at the expense of spending time with the one who is the source and the provider of the ministry. Remember when Jesus talked about why he had these 12? That was primarily that they would be with him in order to send them out. So you're not disrespecting the ministry of Jesus by taking a break. In fact, you are honouring the model that he's put forward, that you would take time away from doing external to spend time with him. And so Jesus and the disciples, they head out to sea away from the crowds. However, they are recognised from the land and people start following them by foot to that same desolate place to which Jesus was taking his disciples. So it was a pretty short-lived rest, you would imagine. But when they arrive and Jesus comes to the shore, if it was me, I'd be like, go home. We're taking a little rest here. He might have even felt like saying that. But it's not what Jesus said. When he went ashore, he saw the great crowd and he had great compassion on them. Because they were like a sheep without a shepherd, and he began to teach them many things. This word translated as compassion within the New Testament, the only person it's described of is of Jesus, having compassion. He looks upon these crowds that have flocked to him, and he melteth compassion as he sees people like sheep without a shepherd. And the expression of compassion that he had toward them wasn't to heal them, wasn't to make their life easier. The way he expressed his compassion to them was he taught them many things. No doubt in line with what he said previously, he would have taught them about the kingdom of God and about repentance. It was his priority to proclaim Think about the way Jesus spoke about his ministry in one of his first sort of sermons, so to speak, in Luke chapter 4, verses 17 to 21. The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and the recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Jesus had a proclaiming ministry. He had a ministry whereby he proclaimed the means by which the captives could be set free. And now by the Sea of Galilee he's proclaiming that good news motivated by his compassion for those who are lost, who are surrounded around him. Now the disciples were a compassionate people too. They look around, they, they notice that you know the sun's starting to set down, they've come to a place that's out in the middle of nowhere, and they're good practical thinkers, and they think Jesus, maybe it's time to, to wind up. You know, the sun's starting to set, it's a long way till people can go and get any food, KFC or dirty birds about to close, super roosters not long far behind that. It was a common sense approach. Common sense thing to do. You've got maybe up to 10,000 people there. It's getting dark. They're not near a source of food. And we all know some speakers, not me of course, who sometimes get a bit carried away and forget about things like this. But rather than Jesus saying, Great idea, I hadn't factored that in, Jesus responds by saying, You give them something to eat. They said, shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give give it to them to eat? Imagine hearing that. You've got 10,000 people. You've just returned from a mission trip that Jesus has sent you on where he says you can't take any money, you can't take any food. Now you've got 10,000 people here and he says, you give them something to eat. Like we feed them. Haven't I... Imagine that having a conference out in the bush somewhere, ten thousand people, and you think, "Oops, we forgot catering." I'd be panicking. Jesus asking the disciples to provide for it says five thousand men, so when include women and children, probably up to ten thousand. Now we already know, by the way, the disciples they put forward their original proposal. There's no food place particularly nearby. So there's the distance factor, there's the cost factor. They say it would be around about 200 denarii just for simple old bread, no gluten-free option, no, no option for the person who's gone on a low-carb diet. 200 denarii, one denarius was the equivalent of one day's wage. So we're talking about nine months wages for an individual. And given that they've just come back from a mission... Where they're told to take no money, no food, this has got to seem like a ridiculous request. But despite the fact that it's a seemingly impossible task, the disciples ask some questions, but everything that Jesus calls them to do, they do it. They've seen enough of Jesus know that Jesus does some pretty special stuff. If he's telling us to do stuff, we'll do it, even though we haven't got a clue what he's doing. They know not to write him off. But they're faced with a crowd of ten thousand. There's a massive need, potentially a massive cost if they're going to have to buy something. And Jesus says, count up what you've got. Count up what we've got. They know they might not know exactly the numbers off the top of the head of what they got, but they know that Whatever we've got, I've watched the whole Gordon Ramsay knife skills thing on YouTube a hundred times, they're not going to cut up small enough to divvy up the small amount they have to share amongst 10,000 people. So the return is, well, we've got five loaves and two fish. Sorry, vegans, the menu's changed, fish is on the menu now too. But we don't see Jesus stressing about it. We don't see Jesus go. You've got to be kidding. Five loaves, two fish, fish—that all you've got. No, he just issues the next command. Have the people sit in their hundreds and in their fifties. And again, without any questions, they start to set, set things out. No doubt fielding requests from the people is like, what are we doing here? What, what are we going to eat But for Jesus it wasn't a difficult task. All it says he simply looked to heaven and said a blessing. We don't have the content of it. There was a common Jewish blessing that was often said before partaking of food where it says, Praise be to you, our Lord, our God, King of the world, who makes bread to come forth from the earth and who provides for all that you have created. might have been something like that. But with these five loaves and two fishes he prayed a blessing looking to heaven for God to provide and then food was divided and sent amongst all these 10,000 people and everyone ate fillet of fish burgers until they were chockers. To quote, not not really quote the Aussie Bible, quote the Steve Bible that was. And it wasn't that each people got a little tiny little crumb, and somehow there was a miracle that made them feel full from eating hardly anything. They ate and they got their fill, they were satisfied. Not only that, there was twelve baskets left over, more than what they even had to begin with. There was kind of echoes here of of the way in which God provided for for Israel in the wilderness, miraculously providing everything that they needed. This was more than just a miraculous work to help and provide a practical need. It was also a revelation of who he was. But for the disciples, while they were obedient, so commonly what they recognised was what they lacked. They said, we've only got five loaves, two fish. Or, we can't do this, it's going to cost 200 denarii. Had they remained fixated on what they didn't have, this would have been a disaster, would have been the worst picnic ever. But our God calls us to do many things, some of which are seemingly impossible. At the conference that we were at this week, um, we reflected on the idea in one of the talks that Gary gave be holy as I am holy. And you hear words like that and I think, I can't be holy to the extent that God is holy for one minute, never mind that to be characteristic of all of my life. And when Jesus says, love your enemies and pray for them, don't we often respond and say, but I'm impatient. Doesn't he know how impatient I am? Doesn't he know that I've got a bit of an anger problem? Or when he says, go and make disciples of all nations, and we say, but I'm not good with people. I'm not good with words. I don't know my Bible well enough. If all we see is our limitations, rather than what He has provided and what He is calling us to, we will never grow, and we will never walk in faith. We'll write off every single circumstance that the Bible talks about that we think that we don't personally have the capacity to do, and we'll go nowhere. We'll only do the things that we can do within our own personal skills that we don't require any faith to do. But let us be remembered. Christian life isn't about weighing up the biblical commands alongside your personal abilities. We need to stop looking what we lack in our own ability, what we don't have, start looking at who we have And who is calling us to do these things? It should never cease to amaze us that the same Holy Spirit that inspired and worked through all of the scriptures who brings these commands to us is the same very Holy Spirit that dwells within every single believer. Just feel the way to that. The same Holy Spirit that inspired all of the scriptures is the same Holy Spirit that indwells you to enable you to walk in obedience. like having the loaves and the two fishes for 10,000. If Jesus says you're on catering, you simply say, what do I do next? And when you look at the command, sometimes we see our lack. And it's good that we see our lack if it points us to look to him and his strength and his provision, his abundance. He doesn't call us to do anything that he's not willing to provide for us. So stop looking what you don't have. Praise God for what you do have in Christ. Secondly, rightly recognizing Jesus. So after feeding the 5000, it says Jesus made or it even also almost expresses something of forced the disciples to get on a boat. Now one detail we don't have in Mark that we do have in John is that at the end of the feeding of the 5,000 Jesus starts to dissipate the crowd because he gets this idea that they're going to force him to try to make him king. And so Jesus is first by dismissing the disciples, getting them onto a boat so that he can dismiss the crowds. And for the second of three times in Mark's Gospel even Jesus goes alone to a desolate place to seek his father in prayer. Now the disciples are on the sea, separated from Jesus who's gone off to a mountain to pray. And it's interesting, every time in Mark's Gospel at least, where the disciples are separated from Jesus, they always find themselves in distress. On this particular occasion, from the distance, Jesus can see that as the winds are blowing headwind. Into their boat, that they are straining, they are putting all their effort and getting hardly anywhere. And then, what appears to be an odd detail says, "And Jesus walking on water and meant to pass by them." Like we read that and think, "Why did he just mean to pass by them? Why didn't he just immediately just get on and help?" Are we picking up on some Old Testament imagery? Sort of like when when, Mo, when Moses says, show me your glory and God passed by him. Was it in hope of just them seeing him and recognising him and recognising he was the one who previously had calmed the storm and calmed the seas? Well, we don't know if it was either of the above but initially it was definitely none of them. those things for the disciples. They saw him and they were terrified because they thought they'd seen a ghost. But that mood went from terror to comfort with these words from Jesus. Immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. I like to call it a comfort singer. You've got these two comforting. Layers of bread on each side that take heart and do not be afraid. And then your meat or tofu if you're vegetarian in the middle. What we have here in the Bible where it says, it is I, he literally says, I am. Exactly like Jesus did in John 8, chapter 58, he says just even before Abraham was, I am Revealing Himself to be the I Am God, as He had revealed Himself in Exodus three fourteen. It says, "Take heart, don't be afraid. I Am is with you." And when He got into the boat, immediately the wind ceased, and they're astounded. It doesn't appear that they're astounded just because they saw Him walking on water. Doesn't even appear to be that they're astounded because he calmed the winds. I mean they've seen all that seen that before, they've seen his control over nature before. It's not so much the events they were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. At the heart of the issue, it wasn't that they'd misunderstood that Jesus had done a miraculous work to multiply food. But they had misunderstood what that revealed about his nature, his identity, who he was. They were hardened in heart. They were were kept from seeing the reality of who Jesus truly was. Because they couldn't see Jesus clearly, They didn't see their circumstances or respond in the right manner. Because Jesus is the lens through which God's people view everything. And if the lens is not clear, you will not see the world in which we live in correctly. We won't respond rightly. To have faith in Jesus, we must know the Jesus in whom we have and placed our faith. And lastly, faithful what? These last few verses is really just a summary of the ministry in Gennesaret. You see much healing, but you also see a little bit of a throwback to something happened before. The lady with the, the bleeding issue, where she's like, If I just touch the hem of his robe. And we see this maybe it's sort of spread around as a rumor, and we see the, the crowds there all saying, If I can just touch the fringe of his garment and all who did were made well. And just like the previous occasion, that phrase translated made well is actually the phrase were saved. Now I'm not saying that by touching his garment they were brought to salvation, but I think there's an intentional wordplay in why the same word is used both for people being made well in terms of physical healing as also being made well in a spiritual restored to God. We see time and time again, Jesus' focus is proclamation, it's not the miracles. More often than not, the miracles served to confirm the authority to say the things in which he had said. Being made well or being physically healed was never intended to be the end goal of the miracles. Rather, they pointed to the greater and more necessary healing that needed to take place, the dealing with the problem of our sin and being restored and reconciled to our God. But sadly, far too often the crowd settled for the sign that brought them convenience and comfort and they didn't seek the greater eternal blessings that were offered in Christ and salvation. There's no joy in a life of smooth sailing in this age, of things going really well, having all the success in the world, if on that last day you'll stand before Jesus clothed in nothing but your own works and your own sin. Our biggest need is to be restored to our loving creator, to have the problem of our sin dealt with, that when we stand before him, It's not something that we fear, but something that we look forward to. The completion of the salvation of our souls, of a people who have already turned from our sin and trusted that Jesus died on my behalf. He has risen and given me newness of life. He is my King. Don't settle for anything less. You're only cheating yourself of the ultimate blessing in doing so. Just one thought I want to have in wrapping up. There's one theme that comes a lot of times, particularly in those first two sections, where Jesus is leading a people to a solitary place, to an isolated place. Initially he calls the the disciples to join him to go to an isolated place. When even the crowds end up at that same place, drawn there by Jesus and as Jesus has compassion upon them and he teaches them about the kingdom and about repentance towards a sheep without a shepherd. Every disciple of Jesus needs focus time to be with him. Whether you're a new Christian, whether you've been a Christian for a 100 years, then Congratulations on your letter from the Queen. Regardless of how long you've walked with Jesus, we need concentrated time without distraction, no agenda, just to be with him, to be taught by him, to be shaped by him. As we think about our own lives, do we have good habits of daily time with him? By good habits, I don't mean just good routines of I'm a Bible, I'm, I'm a good Christian, therefore I'm going to read the Bible and pray. I've done whatever allocated time I've decided. check off something on my checkbox list. But to spend time with him in the word and prayer, to spend time with him, to seek him. We come to him in faith, recognising who he is. Learning more about who he is. Learning more about who we are. Because I can tell you now, I have never faced a single day where I can say to God, it's all good, I've got this one. I've got what it takes to take on this day. But sadly, far too many times I've lived as though I actually believe that to be true. Even in the midst of ministry, it is possibly too busy in the being of sent that you neglect the being with. Now this should warm our hearts that we can spend time with the creator of all, that he listens to our every prayer, that he wants to make himself known. We would we would find it a rich time to be with him, to hear from him, to share our, our deepest concerns with him and have him minister to us through his word. Why wouldn't you? If you haven't yet reached the stage where you've placed your trust in Jesus, take time to be with him. Read through one of the Gospel accounts that kind of talks about... We see what he did, what he said. Wait up, this is important. And if you have already trusted Jesus, maybe things have got busy. Maybe your priorities have gone a little bit skew if. Maybe your time alone with him has got less and less. You want to see things happening around. You want to see the world won for Christ. You want to see revival around you. But revival is not going to happen around you until revival happens in you. We need to abide in him. If you're in that case where you have started to wander and you think, oh, I'm not too sure about coming back. He's going he's to hammer me over the head for the days or weeks or months until I've really had concentrated time with him. That's not his character. Come to him. Consider ancient Israel. In the middle of their rebellion, we read in the book of Hosea, and this is the Lord speaking, he says, Therefore, behold, I will allure her. I will bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. There I will give her a vineyards and make the valley of Achor into a door of hope. There she shall answer in the days of her youth as the time when she came out to the land of Egypt. Be drawn by God to spend some time alone with him. Regularly. Live like everything depends upon it. Because It does. If you haven't yet placed your trust in Jesus, your eternal salvation depends upon it. Coming to know him, being reconciled to him. That Jesus has done all the hard work, regardless of how bad your your background is, he has died a death for all sin. There's no one who says, sorry, you've kind of gone outside the, the acceptable quota of sin. Come to him in repentance and faith. He delights to grant you forgiveness. He delights to call you his children. And if you have trusted in him, we depend upon him for everything. All things. Let's live like a people who actually do depend on him for all things. Seek him in a quiet place daily. When you come across things that seem like he's calling you to the impossible, be reminded that the same spirit that inspired all of the scriptures lives within you. When it seems too hard, just pray, Lord, help. What next? Lead me. I trust you. You are good. It's closing prayer. Heavenly Father. We confess that so often we are, can be inclined to wonder. I'm yet to encounter a Christian who has never experienced this. We see it even occur in your own disciples as we read through the Gospels. But Lord, at the same time, every single one of us, at a time when we are spending quality time with you, know the great rich blessing and reward that it is. And we can't explain other than the desires of the flesh and other things that can pull us away from that. Lord, thank you that you are patient with us. Thank you that at times you will draw us away into the wilderness and you will speak tenderly to us. Even if it's speaking tenderly to us, about our sin, that we might lay it before you. Lord, may we enjoy your presence. May we enjoy walking in obedience. May we enjoy seeing you provide the very things that are needed to walk and live the way you call us to live. Not according to our strength, but according to your power at work amongst us.